Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Alexandra Otolia-Baird, and today I have the great pleasure of talking to Jonathan William Robinson, who alongside Verpi Mekinen, Pamela Slotter, and Heike Hara, is an editor of the new fantastic volume, Rights at the Margins, Historical, Legal, and Philosophical Perspectives, published by Brill this year, 2020. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very happy to be here. There's a huge, uh, vast expanse to cover um, in this this volume today, but we always like to begin our interviews by asking people to just tell us a little bit about themselves and how you came to the topic of the book. Right. Well, I think I should start um, by saying that it was actually Therapy who masterminded this whole project. Um, and so I came to the project through her gracious intervention, I guess. And it may make sense a bit to um, explain sort of how I came to know her, because that does tie, I think, into why the book is the way it is. Um, And so she first made her name writing about medieval theories of um, property and poverty, which came to be an interest of mine. And so I, as a graduate student, as a graduate student, um, began working on William of Ockham, and I wanted to look specifically at his theory of property. And so I quickly became acquainted with her work, uh, which just worked out quite well, in fact, because her chronological stopping point was right before um, Ockham's intervention in these debates. And so I needed to get that background, and I got it from her in the first place. Um, and so I think BRP and I both share the same interest in the, in what is sort of a paradoxical um, fact about mendicant theories of property in the 14th century, which is uh, that some of the best and most interesting and most robust theories about property rights um, were done by people whose express vow was that they were to have none. They made a vow of poverty. And in the Franciscan case, that meant not only a vow of personal property or poverty, which was common amongst many different religious orders at the time, mendicant and otherwise, uh, but also it was a vow of corporate poverty. And so this was novel to the Franciscan uh, Franciscans, which was the order itself had no property or no rights to any property. And that was paradoxical in many ways, one of which was they obviously did live in buildings and go to university in many cases, and were not poor in the way that many people conceive of then and now conceive of poverty. And so that paradox was really what drew me, I think. Um, And I think that was true of Birpi as well. And so I don't know, I can't speak for her for sure, but I suspect this is true for her as well, which is that when you start working and digging into questions of poverty and property throughout the Middle Ages, um, 
what you see is um, sorry, I'm losing my train of thought here. But what you happened, what you end up seeing is that they end up needing to rely on the language of canon law and especially of Roman law because that's where, for many obvious reasons, property ideas about property are articulated and necessary, and I, understanding of how property is acquired and transferred and uh, lent out matters in a big way. And so, although the Poverty debates weren't written uh, mainly by lawyers. For the most part, it was done by theologians and philosophers. They had to build on this language um, of property rights that was already in place uh, in the authoritative texts of canon and Roman law. And the other thing that happens throughout the course of the debate is um, they end up writing about what we now call natural rights. which are rights that are natural and innate to humans by virtue of being humans, and which are related in loose ways to conceptions of human rights now. But they had to develop a robust theory of natural rights, especially regarding the use of property, because while it may be true that you can live without ever owning property or claiming laying title to it, uh, it would be extremely hard to live without ever using any property. And so both of these discoveries, I don't think were novel. Um, They were novel to me and probably novel to Virpi as she began earlier than me to work on these things, but they're not special uh, surprising things that we discovered. It's just something you learn as you start working through this material. And so I became interested, especially in how this, um, this reliance on legal uh, conceptions and legal theory and writings, the lawyers, the jurist writings on natural law, especially, and the relationship to positive law and other forms and the Yuskentium or law of nations, how all of that um, inspired this really rich reflection on ideas about natural rights and their relationship to property rights. And I began to wonder how much that sort of reflected back and gets picked up um, amongst the jurists themselves. So you have these theologians, these Franciscans writing about property, say, but were these ideas picked up back up by the lawyers in the uh, contemporaneously or otherwise? And then the other um, related thing to that was that uh, I also began to wonder how much did these theories of natural rights, which were quite limited in scope. But how how much did they matter on the ground for people who were not actually uh, in the privileged position, as it were, of being a Franciscan, say, who has taken a vow of poverty and is now laying claim to living a very marginalized life because they have dispensed with the um, reliance on civil laws to the extent possible, the greatest extent possible. It still seems to me that their lifestyle and experiences would be much different from someone who was um, involuntarily put into a position of great poverty and need. And so uh, Virpi and I both, I think, explicitly wanted to undertake this project to look at that part, is how much did these theories ever um, matter for people other than the authors who were writing about them? 
uh, because it may be true that these ideas get picked up in normative political theory or normative writings about uh, law and property and so forth. But did they, how far did the rights talk, as it were, permeate um, to the edges and boundaries of society? And so that was sort of the inspiration for me for taking on the project. And I am speaking a little bit out of turn by suggesting that BRP's own views um, were shaped by that same trajectory. But I do think that she would have had thoughts like that as she worked on her own research, because they just seem natural consequences of um, of looking at what could otherwise be just a very rarefied and esoteric theory that didn't have any real application on the ground. So that's, I believe, for me, that's how we got to where we are. But um, like I said, I'm guessing a little bit about uh, what motivated Birpi, who was the mastermind in terms of organizing all the contributors, finding the money, um, like funding the project and so forth. Um, so that's, but anyways, that is my take on it. And I think she would agree with much of what I said just now. And we're definitely going to come back, I think, to some of those contributors and how they became involved with the project. But before we do, you know, so many of these questions that you've you've just introduced, they they are manifested in the book. So could you explain a little bit about what were your really driving motivations behind the book? You know, what was the thesis or um, perhaps that's a little bit too broad to say, but, you know, what was the push? What was the argument um, underlying this volume? Right. So for me, it was strong, like I was very much interested in teasing out the implications of this debate, the mendicant poverty controversy, um, which is to generalize, you could say lasted from between 1250, say, uh, in a very approximate way, that's a little bit late, really, but 1250 through the 1320s, William of Ockham wrote his giant opus, The Work of 90 Days, and um, about the, in the early 1330s. And so you have a huge period of time where this debate was like really all the range uh, in the right circles. And you get a very, in the beginning, the emphasis on in the controversy was very much on how is it even possible as a matter of theory or practice for the Franciscans to claim the type of poverty that they were claiming. And the Dominicans were lumped into this too, although their vow of poverty is much more in line with traditional vows of poverty that you would find in um, monastic orders. And so they don't, it didn't include the corporate dimension specifically. That is really unique to the Franciscans. And so the early critics of the mendicant orders put the charge uh, to the mendicants saying how how does this work? Why is this vow of extreme poverty not simply committing yourself or consigning yourself to death, essentially to suicide? Because it's not possible to go through life having nothing, right? You have to eat, you need clothes to some extent, um, and so forth. And so it just doesn't, like, how does that make sense even? And so this is where you start seeing the first real exploration outside of maybe legal writing on the question of whether use and um, other property rights, especially ownership, are necessarily entwined or are they separable in fact and in practice? Um, and so 
in some ways, it's very easy to make that argument because I can borrow a book from you and I can use it. And as long as I don't destroy it and I return it to you, no problem. But that can't be true, maybe, of food or other fung fungibles or consumables, as they were called um, in the debates, things consumed by use. How is it true that you can never have a property right in an apple that you eat and consume and is gone? It can't be returned. And so on the critical side, they were saying, if you can't use these things, if you don't have any rights to use them, you can't legitimately use them. And therefore, you would be, by making a vow of this sort, bowing to suicide, largely, like to take it to the logical conclusion. And so the Franciscans, especially, but also other authors. So Thomas Aquinas is a well-known name to even non-medievalists. He was a Dominican rather than a Franciscan. Um, although, in my opinion, the Franciscans were the more interesting, typically the more interesting figures in these debates, um, started working on conceptually dividing out use from dominium, which is the Latin word, which we can translate as lordship is often a translation we would use, but it, in this context, it's like proprietary lordship. And so sometimes it's also translated as ownership, um, although I don't like that translation as much because you also have the word proprietas, which looks like it may translate best as property, but really it's property in the sense of ownership. And so anyways, the early debates are really largely about separating out use from proprietary lordship or ownership. And they ended up getting a lot of support from the papacy for reasons that may not be purely related to a theoretical agreement with this conception, but for maybe other more pragmatic reasons in that they wanted the Franciscans to be um, there to work directly for them because they're not uh, subject to um, local bishops' control, but they answer directly to the Pope. And so there are some probably pragmatic reasons for that. But in any event, there were several papal declarations, papal bulls published in the 13th century, which largely supported the Franciscan position and, and uh, allowed for that conceptual division. And it reaches its culmination, I think, in um, Nicholas III in the 1270s, 1279, I believe, published a bull called Exequi Seminat, which um, is so titled just because those are the opening words of the bull. Um, it doesn't have a title per se. Um, and he separates the incidents, if you will, of ownership into five different categories. And two of them are particularly relevant, which is there is a right of using, he said, as well as um, what he called simple use of fact. And so what that means, what he goes on to explain is that the right of using is uh, something that the Franciscans do not have. They don't have any right of using. They only have the use, simple use of fact. And so when they consume something, they are actually consuming it without ever having any proprietary uh, property rights in that thing. And he also, it also goes on to explain that there is... It picks up on another common idea, and this is one that you'll see throughout the book, and I'm sure we will talk about later in greater length, um, the idea that in times of extreme necessity, of course, 
people do have a right of using things, and that's a right of using things that comes from natural law, not human law. And so that one is not something that is getting renounced. But they don't have any, the Franciscans don't have any positive right of using, and positive in the sense of it being a right that finds its sanction in uh, human law, right? So positive in the sense of positive law, in the modern sense of that word. And so they are able to use things without ever having any, you know, civil, mundane, earthly lordship, but they are not necessarily going to be able to, um, or they definitely cannot renounce natural, a natural right, such as one that would apply in a situation of extreme necessity. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so that is the starting point of like getting to getting a grip on what was at stake in the poverty controversy. And what you can see maybe from that description is that, oh, here we have a natural right of using that applies. And it sounds like it applies for everyone because if the Franciscans can't renounce it, it sounds like it's somehow innate and uh, innate to the human experience or the humans, you know, human soul maybe is the way it would be conceptualized then that cannot be, um, done away with. And so you need to keep it and you need to have it and it will apply. And so therefore all of us have this right of using in a time of extreme necessity. And so that was, um, one of the points at which you can start saying, okay, well, great. What does this mean for the actual, uh, I use the word actual poor, that may be unfair, but the people who are poor, not by means of a vow, but by fate or circumstance, um, or birth who are poor and don't necessarily want to live a life of extreme poverty the way the Franciscans claimed they wanted to do. And so that then is for me, and I think for Virpi, the starting point for getting into these, um, getting into the research project that we did and then tracking it through through the later periods. And I don't think that concern necessarily applies for the other um, editors, Heike and Pamela, whose interests are later and don't necessarily, like, it wouldn't be the same sort of interesting problem that they faced in terms of wondering what rights look like at the margins, as it were. Uh, but since it was Virpi's project in the starting point, in initially, that is, it was the, that was, I think, what shaped the direction we went and shaped, um, the search for people who would be interested in working on this project. And that is why there is a strong emphasis throughout many of the essays, or at least a glancing interest um, on the right of necessity, as it is called. And uh, although that wouldn't be the term used in the Middle Ages, that is sort of the, that is a term now uh, that is used. And so um, I guess I'm losing the train of my answer here, but that was like, that was where we started. That was where we started out, and that was what I was interested in too when I came to write on the topic, my own topic. Uh, but I was also, as I said earlier, my interest was also in looking at a specific group of authors rather than tracing the idea itself, which was that I was interested in what the lawyers were doing with this emerging language of, you know, natural rights and the, you wouldn't say the right of, um, 
the right of use in time of extreme necessity was novel to the Franciscans, but they took it into new places and developed that idea. And so there is something to be said about whether any of the jurists of the 14th century, say the contemporaries of Occam, had any interest in these debates and whether it was reflected in their own writings, uh, particularly about poor. And so that was, for me, where I wanted to go with it. And I was very curious to see how it would track out through the centuries. I learned a lot about later centuries that I had always wanted to know, but didn't know um, when it, uh, through the, engage, the involvement of editing uh, this book, to be sure. And I mean, the, the chronological spread is, is quite remarkable throughout the book. And I think the way in which the arguments, although being so very different, there's a lot of very challenging um, perspectives on, on rights and, and natural law and things like this. And they all seem to tie together quite nicely. And we see these very clear threads running through. But before we get to the jurists and kind of come back to these um, questions of necessity, I really just want to hone in for a moment on the title of the book. So it's called Rights at the Margins. Um, and I was just speaking to a European lawyer earlier who assumed that this was the margin of appreciation. So lawyers are already taking this in a different way. But <laughs> I just want to, um, to, to kind of focus on what, what is meant really here by, by rights at the margins, because this is both a, a content um, question and in some ways, I think you presented as a methodology to, to be examining rights at the margins. And, you know, really, I want to know, Julie McClure has put this later in the book um, so well. Um, and I, I'll quote from her and it says, she says, the history of rights has been developed at the margins, either with regard to the rights of co the colonized subjects of the new world or the poor of Europe. And I think that's, that's a very kind of charged way of looking at this. So could you perhaps reveal a little bit about what you and, and your other editors and, and contributors to the volume mean by this term rights at the margins and how you use it? Yeah. So there, the choice of a title is always, um, maybe not always, but sometimes can be a bit of a challenge. And so I think we always knew that the title would be something like this, but it was, the title came a little through little bit late in the project in terms of what the title of the book was. But the idea was always there. And that idea was largely about um, looking at how these theories, which were developed by, you know, leading intellectuals, at least in the Middle Ages, and then tracing the, that influence down through the, through the centuries, um, were people of often great privilege. And so this was one of the critics criticisms of the mendicant orders too was like you say you're poor but how are you really poor like it's just a theory right you make a vow of poverty and then you write a book that's 600 pages long that explains why when you use something you don't have a property right to it or whatever and so it can ring a little hollow um for many at the time and perhaps many today would say that there's a very obvious distinction between truly marginalized or disenfranchised peoples, so people who are uh, living in great poverty or who have suffered a temporary setback and are now in a position of great need, whereas maybe a week before they weren't, or people who, you know, there's a lot of talk nowadays about systemic racism and uh, systemic problems of that nature, and those for sure existed throughout uh, the period um, that our book covers. And so the women, for sure, were always had a, in the, in the Middle Ages, were greatly disenfranchised in comparison to 
many men in terms of what they could do and their reliance on male actors in the courtroom even in order to um, take action to enforce their legal rights. Um, and then there's also the problem of in the Middle Ages, you have a question of, well, there's Christendom and then there's the rest of the world and the rest of the world is maybe uh, is composed of, well, uh, Jews and then what they would call unfaithful um, infideles, right? So unbelievers, the unfaithful, and that would, you know, include the Saracens or people um, who uh, practiced, you know, uh, who were Muslims, and then also um, heretics. And heretics are its own special category because they claim to be Christian, but by deliberate choice, they have chosen to believe a set of doctrines that don't mesh with what had come to be Orthodox Christianity. And so that can take shape in different forms. But the basic idea is that they are not unfaithful. They are people who basically should know better, but have chosen to believe some perverse set of doctrines, say. Uh, and so there's all kinds of different groups of people who could benefit from uh, a robust and expansive view of what natural rights are, uh, especially maybe the right of necessity. And we know that as scholars today, because that's still true. And we have seen, and I would classify myself, to be honest, as a bit of a right skeptic. And that skepticism has grown over uh, the years as I work on these projects, ironically. But um, there's no, there is something to be said that the expansion of human rights today has had a profound impact in many ways on certain spheres of uh, human activity and have helped um, directly or indirectly um, do away with some of the problems of marginalization and certainly not all of them. Socioeconomic rights remain something that many people are skeptical about when it comes to human rights and we are willing to say, you know, people have the right to free speech, but, you know, a right to housing is beyond the pale um, or something like that. So there's, when we think about what rights have done in the last century, it seems like they've done a lot or have the potential to do a lot to help people. And was that true back then? That was the question that we really wanted, I think, to look at. And so what Julia um, latches onto and foregrounds quite well, I think, is that um, there is one, rights are not like magical entities that just make everything better just by virtue of writing about them or saying certain people have the benefit of various rights. Um, and so there is this darker side to it. And I think she's being clever in using that language in sort of two ways. The first is um, the obvious one when she talks about um, the history of rights has been developed at the margins. Um, she's talking first of all, maybe about geography. And so this is definitely a period of time that I am not perfectly familiar with. Um, but in the time that uh, after the new world is discovered, there is definitely a strong interest in 
what these earlier debates about natural rights and rights to property mean in the new world, where it seems like they are living in a, the people there are living in what to uh, European conquerors and settlers seemed like a largely pre-political state. And so that was interesting to them because a, a large part of the writing about the origin of property in the, not in the legal literature, they don't typically don't care about these sorts of things, but in the philosophical literature, theological literature, about the origins of property, um, two periods of time really matter for trying to get to grips on issues about whether use can be separated from dominion, for instance. And those two eras are before the fall, so Adam and Eve before they were expelled from Eden, and then also the time of Jesus and his apostles, because they also lived a life of poverty, and there's explicit references that valorize poverty um, in the New Testament and so forth. So those are two critical time periods. And they are treated sort of as like, a, in a sense, a thought experiment, but also truly uh, a period of time that did happen. It's just they can't necessarily recover exactly what was going on with Adam and Eve in terms of property rights. There's not a lot of material to work with in Genesis there. There's a bit, but there's not a lot. So it is uh, fertile ground to really think about things, um, but really in a sort of almost Rawlsian way where you're like imagining what the situation must have been like or should have been like or what people would have agreed to um, in advance of the um, advent of human institutions such as property and government and so forth. Um, and so in the 16th century, especially um, Spanish or Spanish scholastics and others, I guess, had the opportunity to look at people who were living in what they thought was, and in many cases, they're writing from across the sea, so they have no idea. And so it's maybe still a bit of a thought experiment, but what uh, pre-political societies looked like and did they have property? And what was that like if they did? And like they use things, but did they use things without thereby acquiring ownership rights to them? And so there is that piece, um, uh, on t in terms of the marginality. And then related to that is um, the Franciscans themselves, and that is Julia's main interest as her first book, which was just published a few years ago, was looking at the Franciscan rule in the new world, I believe, um, themselves are the product of marginalization in the sense uh, that Francis, that was Francis's goal. Francis of Assisi really wanted to he didn't care about theories of property. What he did care about, though, was trying to live an authentic life um, that was as close to the life Jesus and the apostles lived as he conceived it as possible. And that meant strongly identifying uh, with the ideals of poverty and also humility, which was just as important, if not maybe more important for Francis. And so living a life free from, although he didn't care about the theory probably at all, but he did care about living without ownership rights. And there's many anecdotes in the stories about his life, about ways in which he would avoid doing anything that might smack of uh, ownership or taking an, a position of authority over others um, and strongly identifying and celebrating the po poverty of 
everyday life. And so that was another angle of marginality. And the irony really for Julia, uh, Julia's essay that is, is that you have in the Franciscan writers writing about the new world, they themselves were committed to a sense of marginalization through their own vow of poverty. But then they used the very same language that was developed by their forebears and also their contemporaries about natural rights and uh, its interplay with property, especially uh, to um, suppress or uh, disenfranchise in other ways the peoples of the new world and appropriate property from them and appropriate resources and uh, irrigate places to stay to themselves and so forth. And so there's marginality on in terms of like who the authors were and then also geographically. And then what brings it to, I guess, maybe we can save that when we go through the contributions more carefully, but that ties into her concern with what she calls the dark history of rights is these two types of, um, are very much tied into these two senses of marginality. Um, that I think you can see in her essay. And we're definitely going to come back to that darker side of rights as it's such a, a very kind of pressing issue, I think, at the moment in our contemporary culture. But something that I think really lends itself to this um, kind of conceptualizing of marginality in the, in the volume is the interdisciplinarity of it. Um, you know, you have Julia McClure, for instance, a historian of poverty. You yourself are a medievalist and a, a practicing lawyer, if I'm correct. You know, you've got people like John Salter, who's, you know, very famous in the history of political thought. Could you tell us a little bit about who is contributing to the volume and the, and the very varied fields that they've come from and, um, and how that really lends itself to, to both the content and, um, and the audience, really, I suppose, of the book? Sure. So I, I, maybe we'll start with the audience first, because um, I think our hopes for the audience is, of course, uh, that they will be as read, read by as many people as possible and will, you know, become the next best-selling beach book of the year would of be the I greatest. Have <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's true that we have people of a very different backgrounds um, contributing to the book, which I do hope does broaden its appeal um, because I for sure learned a lot. Um, in working on this book and reading through everyone's essays. Um, and you do see that it has a very wide reach. It's the problem in my view there is actually that once you start doing that, you start seeing all the gaps and it would be impossible of course to have a truly comprehensive book that, that wasn't thousands of pages long. Um, but you start seeing, you know, there's, uh, coverage, for the Middle Ages and the early modern period, and then it sort of jumps from uh, the Scottish Enlightenment to the present, and in an ideal world uh, that, and a world where Brill allowed us to write a longer book, even uh, there would be even better range, and it would attract an even wider range of um, wider audience. And so, I my view is that core audience will be people similar to the contributors themselves. And ideally, they will find what they need in this book, but also look to at least glance at the other chapters, because I do think there's um, good interplay among many of them in terms of like recurring themes and so forth. 
especially right of necessity, I think, is the one that really stands out as the most obvious candidate in that regard. Um, but really, hi historians and scholars of the history of philosophy and law, I think, are going to be the ones that are most likely to gravitate to this. And I do like the idea, indeed, of modern day lawyers having more of an interest in, uh, in these things, because there's often, in my own practice, you s deal with situations and cases and legal arguments that I know have a deep history. Some of them, I know that there is a deep history, but I don't know that history. And uh, I have that. I would like to know more often. You don't necessarily have the time, but I would love the idea that people who, when they think about um, things, especially like in Alejandra's essay, which is about um, how the right of necessity maybe ties into questions of global justice, um, appreciates that this is an idea with a very long pedigree. And that doesn't necessarily make her argument more convincing um, at all, because when you dig down deep through the centuries, you start realizing that the right of necessity has a very limited scope and that what people are trying to do now with that argument is greatly increase its reach. Um, and it's maybe just as well to know that that wasn't necessarily the original way that right was formulated. And that helps maybe think about like what work it can do today. And uh, how extensive and how broad it could be, perhaps. Um, so that's sort of a wide-ranging uh, take on what the audience may look like, but really, I mean, I do hope it is read widely by many people. Um, and in terms of who we assembled as the range of scholars, we do have a good mix. Amongst, uh, I think it's probably easier to try to group them, although there is a degree of overlap. Um, in people's interests. But among the medievalists, I would count myself, for sure, and Virpi, and Miko, and even uh, Ilsa. And um, Miko and Virpi and I, for sure, share an interest in, and Ilsa, an interest in intellectual history um, and uh, on the history of political thought, especially. Like, I, when I first started working on medieval theories of poverty, as I thought of it, I did not think of, I considered myself a student of intellectual history, but I didn't necessarily consider myself a student of the uh, history of political thought. But that is sort of the broadest uh, sort of standard category that you could lump what Virpi, I think, uh, and I, and Nico, who was still just a graduate student, were doing um, in this book and writing on property rights in general. I think it falls under that category. Um, although I guess you could treat it as a branch of, say, moral philosophy, too. Uh, but it has very practical political implications and is something that really gets dealt with under that branch. Um, and so for me, that also meant coming slowly to realize that I needed to learn medieval law. And so although I am a lawyer now, I studied medieval law before <laughs> I studied, studied modern law. And that was actually, um, I felt like born of necessity because they use all these legal, all this legal terminology that oftentimes you think you like this superficial meaning of the word or the most easily 
English uh, cognate of that word may be misleading and you're not necessarily appreciating there's a, it's a term of art and there's a whole you know, penumbra of meanings and associations related to what seems to be a very simple and straightforward term. Um, and I, of all of us, I would say my interest in law ran, runs the deepest, um, whereas Ilsa, for sure, her focus is on the history of gender and sexuality. And that, to my mind, always means an uh, engagement with political thought as well, because that does seem to me, at least, and I'm definitely not an expert in that area, um, always have to sort of interact with political theory in order to appreciate um, where, uh, for instance, in the case of Ilsa's paper, where women have trouble, for instance, prosecuting their own legal rights and so forth. And then the other big group of scholars, I think, are those who focus on the early modern era uh, going up to um, John Salter. And so uh, Wim, for instance, is probably the most thoroughbred legal historian of the group of all of us. Um, but he, too, is actually very much interested in the influence of um, the Second Scholastic and the um, theologians of the 16th and 17th centuries and their influence on legal writing. Um, especially his first book was really about um, the history of like contract law in that time period. And it was very much an interdisciplinary work that tracks and tries to track that precise influence, um, I think, on all these doctrines of contract formation and validity of contract and so forth. And then Julia's, I guess, maybe more of the historian's historian. Um, and her focus, as I've touched on already, is, I suppose, especially, and I don't know if it's changed much since, but was on the Franciscans and their role in the global economy and especially on poverty um, in that time period. And then Yossi's interest is. Um, Similar to mine and Virpi's, I would say, except just comes later. Uh, but looking at intellectual history and the history of rights, especially at the end of the fifteenth um, and the beginning of the sixteenth century, he wrote a book on Conrad Sumenhart, who figures also in his own essay um, on the possibility of animal rights um, um, uh, in Sumenhart's writing and then Vittoria's writing, and then I guess. Heike and John come even later still. Heike's focus is very heavily on Samuel von Pufendorf, uh, as is his essay in this book. Um, and then maybe John's interests are sort of later still, in the sense that he, I think he's written fairly extensively on um, people like Hume and Adam Smith, but then has become interested in their intellectual backdrop and has since or recently, and I use the term loosely, I guess, because I think he started writing about Grotius about 15 or so years ago now, um, but reaching back into other, um, it's, ironically, I guess he's become interested in lawyers such as Hugo, Hugo Grotius and their influence on people like Hume and Smith. 
And then finally, rounding out um, the group is uh, Pamela, one of the editors of the volume, whose focus is really on modern topics, but on the same themes that uh, I think Birpi and I, for instance, are interested in, which is on law and politics and moral philosophy broadly construed. Um, and then her special interest is, I think, how all of those um, fields relate to ideas about human rights, um, as opposed to, I suppose, natural rights, uh, the modern term we use uh, is human rights. But the same basic ideas, I think, uh, just um, uh, just updated for today's world. And then Alejandra um, has some related concerns, I think, to Pamela. I think Pamela uh, was the one who brought her on board, in fact. And her focus is especially on human rights thinking and how and on from what I understand, like in this essay on the interaction of human rights and global justice issues, but then more broadly, I think she's interested in things like environmental ethics as well, because as her essay in this book um, touches on, there's the unfortunate climate change we seem to be experiencing in greater uh, quantities every day is directly relevant to her argument that the right of necessity may have a very important role to play or should play a very important role in how we deal with some of these global crises. And so um, I think that covers everyone. I'm not sure. It is quite a wide-ranging volume. Um, so let's let's then just dive into that first section. So this is, I mean, really where your own chapter comes to play. And this first section of the book is exploring rights and the poor law. And it really examines how different medieval and, and very early modern jurists conceived poverty and poor relief. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about really focusing on your own chapter here, which explores how 14th century jurists like Johannes Andreae, um, Bartolus of Sassofrato, and Baldus de Ulbades, how are they intervening in the debate over mendicant poverty? Um, yes, certainly. So when I started, so when I started this project, or when I came on board with this project, I was actually in the, had just started a postdoc where I was taking, um, to heart this, this this realization that you know in order to really understand these topics uh studying medieval law should i should do more of that and so i did a ended up doing a postdoc um in washington dc under a scholar by the name of ken pennington who's one of the leading scholars of the medieval medieval legal history um and so my intention was always fairly broad um, in that I was interested in how generally the discussion of rights, as it were, and property rights in these debates was getting reflected back, if at all, I had no idea when I started out, um, into the writings of the jurists, who typically are writing commentaries on uh, the existing authoritative texts of um, Roman and canon law. So writing commentaries on the digest or the code or the um, uh, institutes and novels and so forth. 
And so not necessarily a great place for free thought and wide ranging debate, but they also wrote other in other genres that would allow for the potential of um, seeing that sort of uh, interest come back, shine through in their own writing. If there was any sort of influence by people like Bonaventure and Aquinas or later Occam or Scotus and so forth. And so then I ended up connecting with Virpi, who I knew by reputation at that point, but not personally. And when I became involved in this project, it was sort of the perfect opportunity to take a very narrow focus. Like my interest was broader at the time, but you can't be writing an essay. Of course, you need to keep it somewhat constrained by, uh, you know, a word count. And so I um, thought, okay, this is a great chance to look at what Johannes Andrea, who was a canonist, who um, was a very close contemporary of Occam. And so Occam uh, was who I'd first written about, and he died in 1347. And Andrea died, I think, in like 1348, very basically the same time. Uh, and he was a canonist, especially. And then there's Bartolus, who ended up he was also a very close contemporary of Occam, except he made it, um, Occam died before the Black Death came, and Bartolus survived that, uh, and but passed away in like 1357 or something. So again, very close contemporary. And these are two of the great, like two of the most important jurists of the Middle Ages, of the 14th century, without question, uh, in terms of influence and reach, um, and like, the profundity of their thought, I would say, and so on. So I thought these are perfect candidates for looking at seeing who around the same time as Occam, uh, who would have been aware of these debates because they were um, important individuals in their own right and wouldn't have been ignorant of something that had been raging for so long. And in fact, Bartolus had written a tract about the mendicants, about the Franciscans, not specifically on these topics at all. And so it was un not helpful for the purposes of this essay. And then uh, Bartolus had a student named Baldus who trained as became increasingly common and received his degrees in both canon and civil law. And so he also seemed like a good candidate because one, he would be and did write in both traditions. Um, and also he came a little bit later. So he passed, I think he died right in the 1400, if I remember correctly. Um, and so he would have been uh, a generation after. And so maybe what Occam, for instance, had to say in the middle of the, or in the middle-ish first, late part of the first half of the 14th century was too fresh, say, for his contemporaries, but maybe Bartolus would have been able, he coming later, he would have had a greater opportunity to absorb and digest and utilize some of um, those ideas. And so that was, my thought, but I didn't know what I would find. And it turns out that it doesn't seem like this language of uh, rights, um, natural rights, or like this increased emphasis on sometimes people talk about subjective rights and so forth, doesn't seem uh, to play any great role in their writings, which is not to say that they were unaware that there were poor people in this world or that there was uh, this doctrine about. Um, how necessity has no law and what that's implications might have for 
uh, an impoverished person's ability to lay claim to someone else's property in order to stave off imminent death. Um, that seems that they took the problem and answered it in maybe what would be more traditional language. So they didn't have recourse to any of the these writings. Um, and in fact, you don't see even refer- references to, in many cases, to the papal bulls, some of which were incorporated into canon law proper um, in their own writings. And so, for instance, Nicholas that Nicholas III's bull from 1279 did become part of one of the official books of canon law. Um, and other writings, uh, which I haven't touched on, did. Other bulls didn't. They weren't incorporated into, they were still official papal declarations on topics, but they weren't uh, codified and put into a collection um, that was officially promulgated by a pope. But some of these writings were. And so there is the opportunity for these categories um, to play these categories of thought and the five incidents that Nicholas identified, including the right of use, simple use of fact, and so forth, to be included in their discussions. But when it comes to writing about the involuntary poor, as it were, um, that doesn't seem to be the case. And so I was a little bit disappointed, I guess, to find that because I was maybe been more interesting or maybe easier for me to absorb it if it was if their discussions were couched in language I was already familiar with. But that doesn't seem to be the case. And so I, when I tried to answer whether this language of rights had any um, found its way back into the commentaries of the legal tradition, the answer was sort of no. Uh, but that isn't to say that they didn't have answers to um, these problems or that they were even unaware of these distinctions um, in terms of types of rights and so forth. And so, um, in fact, what you see, Andrea is a perfect case of, uh, or perfect example of someone, and he's not the only one, where at one point he will list out a whole list, not list out a whole list, uh, <laughs> um, of different meanings of the word yus, which can, in the two simple translations for yus, is either law or right. And this is why sometimes there's this big debate about when subjective ideas of rights come in, which is largely, I think, uh, misunderstood on that point um, for the medieval uh, period, at least. But anyways, he, Johannes, lists, you know, some 21 possible meanings uh, of yus. And you, there you do see ideas of um, like an objective, like yus is enshrined and framed by like an objective morality um, or that it can be conceived of as a type of power, a virtuous power, or it can refer to ownership or lordship and so forth. Um, and he too um, recognizes that uh, in times of necessity, it might be that people have to take actions for which, which would otherwise be condemned. Um, but in this, those particular circumstances, they are not to blame. And so you can think of a defense of necessity, which you sometimes see today. In Canada, there is such a doctrine. Uh, and the idea is that you aren't to, that, that if you raise a successful defense of necessity, what you actually are accomplishing is one of two things. You're either 
justifying that action. Um, and that could be, for instance, um, you know, speeding to a hospital to save a dying, dying person. There's no question you're guilty of the offense of speeding, but that it is actually not just, um, you were not just excused from that violation of breaking the law. It, people would typically say you were justified in the circumstances to do that deed. And so it can be justificatory. And that's um, in a way better. So you're saying that it might be a crime in different circumstances, but in this case, there's, you know, it was what needed to be done. And it's actually a good thing that you did it. In other cases, necessity can be merely exculpatory. And that would be saying that the action is wrong. And uh, it's no one is going to say that it was good that you did that thing, but you may not be held to blame for it. And so that can be where a crime is committed, uh, but you had no ability to recognize that your actions were criminal or something like that. Um, so that's like uh, an example would be found not criminally responsible for a crime, maybe, right? You still have to be found guilty of the offense. Someone maybe was killed, um, but you did not appreciate to a sufficient degree um, how your action was wrong at that time. And so you are guilty of it, but you're not held criminally responsible. And so that would be exculpatory. And you can see in the writings of the medieval jurists and in Andrea for sure as well, um, people answering that question as what does poverty excuse or what does necessity excuse if you do something like take other people's food, say, in order to stave off death? Is that are you justified in that action or are you merely uh, not held to be uh, blamed for like uh, you're not going to suffer a penalty for it because although it's wrong to do it, uh, you had to do it. And so you do see different answers. Um, and some people say that I think what Andrea says, um, is that because he li relies on this notion that punishment should not follow where there is no underlying fault or cause, uh, which is itself a very interesting doctrine in the jurists. Um, and he connects that to the idea, therefore, that necessity can make the illicit licit, he says at one point, which sounds to me like that's a justificatory answer to that problem rather than merely exculpatory. Um, but other people are even more explicit. Um, you'll see, I'm drawing a blank on the name now. Um, but one person writes, who is it? Johannes Teutonicus, um, another canonist. Uh, influential canonist who says that it is um, poverty can be an excuse or necessity can be an excuse. And so that sounds very much exculpatory. And then another canonist, Bernard uh, Parmensis, I think, says, no, actually what's happening in those times of necessity is the poor are merely taking what's already theirs. And that's drawing on the idea that in times of necessity, all things are to be shared. Another classic maxim that is found in the texts of the uh, medieval Ius Commune, so the Roman and canon law texts. Um, and so you see different answers to that problem. And Andrea seems to be falling more into a justificatory camp. But notice that it's not a language of rights he's using, right? What he's saying is when you're in deep trouble, if you were to do this, it is 
okay in the circumstances. But that's not, he could have said in the same breath, you know, like this is what we call, um, you know, this is our natural right of using that doesn't apply when it's being abridged by other positive laws about property ownership and stuff. But in times of necessity, necessity has no law and you're able to um, deploy that right and take what you need to in order to survive. So he, he could have, but he doesn't quite go that far. And so that's what I mean when I say that it doesn't seem like these authors were using the language of rights that they might have used if they were to draw on this earlier debate and to some extent contemporaneous debate. And then Bartolus and Baldus, their writings more fall into the Roman law tradition. And so their interest is largely on, uh, they also recognize the maxim that necessity has no law. Um, what they really bring to the fore in that point and what is implicit in a lot of these essays, but not necessarily drawn out to the extent that it might be, which is that typically this doctrine of necessity is a time-limited thing. So you are only in extreme need for a short amount of time, right? It's not, it is not a right that it's, you are just poor. And so every day you would be relying on um, the principle of extreme necessity in order to go around and ignore existing property arrangements uh, and rules. It's more for, um, so that would be an example, I think. Sometimes I've seen a distinction between vertical and horizontal inequality. And vertical inequality is sort of the difference between the rich and the poor. How big is that gap? And that's one that we care about a lot today. But in the Middle Ages, and it seems to me um, in the early modern period, that interest, they recognize, of course, that there's a difference between the rich and the poor. But that they're accepting of that difference and maybe think even it's like part of the natural order of things and it's not something that should be disrupted, uh, which is sort of the lesson I take from Wim's essay, in fact, about allowing these basically noblemen who've fallen on hard times um, special leeways that you wouldn't grant to other people as like a way of like safeguarding the political order, which is that you don't want a bunch of noblemen suddenly getting overturned and um, treated as if they were just, you know, regular poor people or something. Uh, but the other way to think about it is horizontal. And horizontal captures the idea that, like, relative to your baseline starting point, you have either become wealthier or, in the, the case we're interested in, poorer. And that is a temporary, potentially, uh, temporary change. And that is where the right of necessity, as it comes to be called, seems to apply most. And so what it does is it alleviates a short-term problem and helps prevent people ideally from falling, you know, dying <laughs> in the streets, but it doesn't actually change things um, in a major way or in a systemic way or in a long-term way. It's just a short-term solution to what is hoped to be a short-term problem. Um, and so even the Franciscans didn't argue, like Occam at least, didn't argue that he only made use of his natural right of using things. Most of his use was without rights, without positive rights or legal rights, but he used things by the permission of the owner. And it was a revocable permission that could be withdrawn at any time. And if it were withdrawn, you were just, that's just too bad. Now, a matter of fact, the permissions weren't withdrawn. And so that struck people as some hollow theorizing in many cases. 
But the idea was that wasn't that he that Franciscans lived only by the right natural rights at all. It was that most of their rights, most of the time, they were living by license, a revocable license or a privilege, a revocable privilege. And so, um, what bring me back to my essay, Bartolus and Baldus really help sell that point that this is a short term problem that we're actually talking about. And they don't frame it either in terms of rights. What they frame it in is they pick up on this idea of uh, an ordo caritatis, an order of charity. And this is the idea uh, that you sometimes see today uh, reflected in the slogan that charity starts with oneself, which sounds maybe a little bit oxymoronic or paradoxical. Uh, but the idea was that you had to first take care of your own needs before you can be in a position to help others. and Ordo, the order, um, is that it's not that you give charity indiscriminately to all who ask, but that you actually have to like organize and think about who is deserving of your charity. And that is you yourself, first of all, and then your family next and neighbors and people you know. And it extends outward in sort of concentric circles, maybe, to eventually to strangers and people you don't know. Um, and that was maybe a pragmatic view to take when much of society was largely at the level of subsistence only or below subsistence or not much above subsistence. So there wasn't great surplus maybe to be had. Um, And it also stresses the point that a lot of the obligations we have, so it's not framed in rights, but it's framed in terms of duties. It's the duties we have to our family. And that includes, and Bartolis goes through the example of, you know, what do you do when you have the means to support a son who just should be working but doesn't. Um, and there is no other social security net really for that person to fall back on. And you, as the father or the mother, say, oh, by natural law, you have an obligation to support that person. So again, it's not really um, framed in terms of rights at all. But that isn't to say that they didn't appreciate that there was. Uh, need to help people in need. It was just like lawyers were, especially the canonists, were very concerned with like being able to distinguish between those who deserved, as they thought, help and those who did not. Um, and people who deserved help were typically people you knew at some level because you knew whether they deserved it. And so it was easier to discern. But the problem with strangers is that you don't necessarily know that because they're not your neighbor, they're not a family member. And that became an increasingly important problem, I think, um, as urbanization grew. And so those kinds of questions uh, really vexed the, um, the canonists, especially, it seems, from what I've been reading, uh, it seems like the canonists focus on these concerns more than uh, the civilian lawyers did. Um, but the reference to the, that syntagma ordo caritatis um, to me, suggests that they also were concerned with it too. Um, it's just typically the poor, I guess, did have uh, an ability to call upon the bishop in times of need. And like that was a, a diocesan responsibility. And so the civilians writing about Roman law text didn't necessarily get into that subject just because it wasn't part of the material that they were commenting on. Um, anyways, the other final thing that I thought was interesting in what I found 
was Bartolus, who was writing after, um, you know, the Black Death had ravaged Europe and then was, you know, coming back sort of every 10 years in milder forms. Um, but writing after that maybe had some profound implications and impacts on urban living. He makes the important point that there is something to be said at the civic, like city level, um, that you don't have masses of poor people roaming the streets in need and, um, you know, begging for charity. And so there's something to be said that the city should maybe take on, has some role to play, uh, which is pretty novel. Definitely guilds at the time would take on roles of charitable giving as part of their duties um, um, in the city and so forth. But this wasn't framed that way. It was framed more at the city level. And it seems like that is a move towards recognizing that the state has some role to play in alleviating um, you know, the worst of poverty, as it were. Um, so that was sort of what, <laughs> what my essay focused on. And so it wasn't about rights at all. It was more on existing language of duty and charity. That's a really great example, isn't it, of how we have rights without the rights talk, um, to use that fantastic phrase, um, right. and how it has this much longer trajectory that we can still be mapping in spite of what has become this really ingrained um, language and discourse that we can't seem to break away from because it's so ingrained in our, our contemporary understanding of rights and law and, and how we participate in society. But I'd like to just jump ahead a little bit, um, if I might, to the third section. So this is when you go from rights at the margins to those who are beyond the margins. And it really looks at those individuals who were actually being excluded from rights discourses. And you've already mentioned some of the groups here, but they were kind of very much less visible in terms of historical marginalization. So there's groups such as widows and animals even and, and heretics. Could you just give us or give listeners a, a very broad overview of how these groups were perceived and what they as being beyond the margins really tell us about the formation of rights and the very diverse historical interpretations thereof? Right. Yeah. So one of the um, interesting things, and I'm glad we were able to get some papers that do this, are those that went really to the ends and beyond of the margins, as it were. Um, because that's a good way of testing um, sort of the theory, like how expansive and encompassing is this theory of rights, really? Uh, how, what, where can it go and what can it do and what can it not do? Um, and so the easiest example, I think, in that case is um, Yossi's paper on animal rights, because he picks up on. Um, and again, I don't know the details of the debate so as well as he, for sure. Um, but from his essay, uh, and uh, what I understand is that there was um, actually, I let me back it up. So he looks at the question of animal rights, and there is actually some um, authoritative legal texts that relate to that uh, that serve as the basis for. He looks at Vittoria and at Conrad Sumenhart and what they have to say about animal rights. But there is going all the way back to an early account of what jus naturale is. 
comes from the digest. And there's a passage in the digest, which is repeated basically verbatim in the institutes um, that basically says um, that U.S. naturale, and here we usually want to translate this as natural law, um, uh, is what nature teaches all animals. And so this is right at the very beginning of the digest. And it's, in my view, you get different accounts in these legal texts of what uh, natural law is or is not. And it's not necessarily that they're like definitions, but competing definitions, um, but like an account of what it can refer to, which is not quite the same thing to my mind. But here, in this case, what you have is natural law is what nature teaches all animals. Um, and it goes on to say, because that use is not exclusive to the human race, but to all animals which are born on land and sea uh, and in the air. Um, and then it gives examples of what it means. And it talks, uh, and it says from it, so from the us naturale, comes the conjunction of male and female, which we call matrimony. Uh, from it comes appropriation of children. From it comes their rearing. Uh, and then it concludes, for we, also, we see also all other animals, even wild beasts, are reckoned to have knowledge of this law. So there is this idea that has always existed um, from the, for medieval people from like a timeless way, right? Because this is from the digest itself, uh, not just a recent pronouncement of some author. Um, but this idea that natural law applies to not just humans, but to animals as well. And so this is the backdrop of Yossi's paper. And interestingly, in canon law, this similar idea, uh, there's a similar idea that riffs on this passage, but leaves out the part that natural law is something that is common to all animals. But it does talk about matrimony and procreation and the rearing of children um, and so forth. And so that might be an interesting topic for uh, another paper another day. Um, but UC's paper then looks at these. Um, specific example. That's the backdrop. And then UC looks at these debates about natural rights. And so they hear Victoria and UC agree that right is like a moral faculty or a power uh, that enables someone to do something. And this is the, falling into the realm of what Michel Villet would call a subjective right um, with a great deal of disdain. Um, but Sumenhart in his definition and in his discussion allowed that animals do have a sort of dominion over uh, the things that they do over their actions, uh, especially like eating food and so forth, um, or maybe building a nest maybe or something like that. But Victoria denied that animals could have it. Uh, and so I don't know if he would have maybe known that there were these two different definitions and maybe he was more inclined to follow the canonistic take of what jus naturale is in terms of matrimony and procreation and so forth. Um, but they don't, uh, the point is that some people met, did envision animals having rights. Now, these are rights, though, that are about um, sort of rights of self-mastery, uh, which ties into sort of a will theory of rights which is the idea that to have a right is to basically make you a sort of mini sovereign over that specific domain 
that the right deals with. Um, that's a far cry from talking about animal rights in the sense that animals have the right maybe not to be eaten or killed or treated inhumanely and so forth. But it is, I guess, a step in that direction. Um, uh, but it wasn't universally agreed by any means, because here you have two rough contemporaries and you're seeing both sides of the debate um, uh, being defended. Then related to the real extremes of marginality, I guess you would put Ilse's paper there on Christine de Pizan, um, who is a very prolific author in the late 14th and early 15th century, um, and who had some experience trying to deal with uh, the law, like to engage in lawsuits, that is, which for a woman was well nigh impossible. Um, you typically needed someone to represent your interests in the court. Um, and so she ends up writing about problems of widows who are often people who have fallen on poverty and are typically included in the category of uh, what are known as personae miserabiles, so you know, wretched people, as it were. Uh, widows are a prime classic uh, class of people that fall under that category amongst others, uh, you know, maybe students or people who've, people who've fallen ill or who are really old and so forth. Um, and they're wretched in the sense that they're disempowered in some way. It's not necessarily always about poverty, but it can be about disenfranchisement um, as well, or like an inability to earn a living because you're ill, you're too enfeebled to actually uh, go out and work. So she looks at uh, specifically um, what the role, the law's role is. Um, in terms of helping the needy and defenseless. And specifically, she's writing, as I understand it, to women. So it's like to help them understand what they can and can't do and where and how to successfully, you know, engage with um, civil life, especially in this context in the courts. Um, and her view is, and draw, she draws on Aquinas to formulate this view, but that the law is there to help protect the defenseless. So not exactly language of rights, in my view, um, but definitely uh, some reflection on what the role of the law is, and what its purpose is. Um, and in a very, you know, helpful way, because oftentimes people treat it in a very sterile manner, and it doesn't really get you very far in terms of other than, uh, you know, that there you need to have procedural justice in uh, litigation or that, you know, we need strong rule of law safeguards um, as if that itself is a virtue uh, or an end unto itself. Um, a rule of, I'm thinking of specifically of the protection of private property in that sense. Uh, so protection against, you know, government interference in your property uh, and so on. And then the other essay I think that really touches on this is Virpi and Miko's essay, which looks at the, this is a very medieval problem, um, but what do you do with people who aren't Christians? Does your membership in, uh, you know, Christianity matter in terms of what kinds of uh, property holdings you are allowed to have as a matter of justice? And so this is particularly relevant in an era when uh, 
the Crusades were still ongoing. And at the root of it, you have the classic uh, two positions are staked out by contemporary canonists, one who becomes Pope Innocent IV in the 13th century and his very near, uh, very, very near contemporary Cardinal Hostiensis, both of whom are very influential um, canonists. Um, and so Innocent IV takes the position that, you know, uh, it does matter and infidels cannot hold dominion, uh, so property rights legitimately. So you can have like a de facto usurpation or something where you factually hold property, but that's not to say that your title to it is just or would be recognized um, in that way. Postiensis takes a different view, which is that they are entitled to hold property. And then you can imagine, quickly see how this these two views are going to reverberate down through the centuries. And so you have Occam who would side, who's spent a lot of his time writing against the popes of his day, um, saying that that sort of thing doesn't matter. And that, of course, you know, unbelievers uh, would be able to hold property. Uh, on the other side, in people like Giles of Rome and John Wycliffe, um, so Giles of Rome is before Occam and Wycliffe comes at the end of the 14th century after him, who take a very strong view that you're Proprietary lordship needs to be justified in some way, and all justification has to go stretch back to God at the end of the day. And if you're not able to draw that chain all the way back, then you can't really legitimately or with justice, with true justice, hold property. And then you can see, I think, that those sorts of ideas would then have a role to play potentially in the debates about uh, the peoples of the New World what kind of property rights they might hold uh, or not hold, as it were. And well, so... Before I let you go, I'd like to pick up actually on that point of, of coming back to this um, kind of colonial um, uh, aspect, because this, this is addressed in the final part of the book. And, and this dark side of rights that we've already mentioned, it really, it, although it's focused on in this more contemporary um, section of the book, it, it does feed through even in chapters uh, such as your own, such as those which are, are medieval, um, in in content, could I just ask you to to very briefly, because I realise how much yeah. of your time we've taken up already, um, just just to just to reflect a little bit for listeners on on how that dark side of rights is really explored throughout the volume, not just in a contemporary sense, but almost in the sense of this trajectory that goes throughout the chapters. And although you're exploring very different concepts of rights and, and rights regimes and, and not even rights as we talk about, because we don't have the language with which to talk about rights as rights, how are these all connected and what threads um, run through the volume? On specifically the darker side of rights, as it were. Completely um, conceived, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm with you. I will try to be brief. I realize now that we have been talking for some time. Um, I, when I was uh, thinking about the, that uh, issue, the dark side of rights, it reminded me there was, and I couldn't find it again, but I remember reading once Joseph Raz, a contemporary legal theorist, spoke about the rule of law as the virtue of the rule of law, I think he said, is something like the virtue, like the virtue of a knife, right? Which is to be sharp. And so it's not to say that it's it can cut both ways, as I think is the idea, right? And so um, the same problem with rights, I think, is true. And Julia's essay is good at bringing that out, especially, um, which is that you can use the language of rights 
to suppress and disempower people um, perhaps just as easily as you can um, use it to empower people. And she does give examples of Franciscan authors who, in a sense, know very well um, what it's like in theory, maybe only, but to be, you know, uh, impoverished and uh, on the lowest rung of society and not exer- not exercise any legal rights, being able to exercise any legal rights, um, who then in the new world were able to uh, appropriate things for their own use on the basis that, you know, in times of necessity, all things are common. So I guess we'll take this or the right to hospitality, which is also not something we've touched on, but it does tie into um, concerns about poor relief. Uh, that I was talking a bit about in my own essay, um, and that was specifically the problem of strangers and how do you recognize whether that's someone who deserves help or not. Um, but the right of hospitality, according to Julia, was also used in a broad way that ultimately involved the appro- appropriation of natural resources um, and claiming land or space for themselves, uh, whether people liked it or not. So you can see that. Uh, and that's happening even while in Europe, people are clamping down on vagrancy and not uh, the language of rights and extreme need does not seem to be making any headway in terms of the poor of Europe in the 16th century being able to um, get out of their own poverty. And in fact, are finding new restrictions, maybe even on their ability to beg and seek relief um, in that in excuse me, in that informal way. Uh, So that's some of the way that you see the darker side of rights. I think for my interest, really, one of the things that I've come to appreciate more, as I said earlier, a little bit of a right skeptic, is that sometimes uh, rights and duties are often like opposite ends of the telescope. And so when you, you can talk, you can frame an issue in terms of rights, or you can frame an issue in terms of duties. And that's not universally true. I don't mean to suggest all rights have a opposite correlative duty at all. But oftentimes, there is uh, a degree of correlativity there. Um, And it seems to me that maybe some of the better ways to look at some of these issues isn't through the lens of rights at all, um, which leaves people maybe with rights that are hard to realize. Um, You know, you could have a right to acquire property, but if you don't have ever given the means to acquire it, the right is going to be fairly hollow, say. Um, Whereas when you look at, think of it in terms of duties, then maybe the ability to, what it does is it sharpens the point that we have a role to play in the care and assistance of others in a way that rights don't. Because rights are often conceived of in negative terms, which is giving people the freedom from interference. Um, and positive rights, which actually require others to do things, are often viewed with a great deal of skepticism as unworkable or what have you. So the right to vote, we grudgingly give people and governments take the steps maybe to allow people to vote, although maybe not in the upcoming U.S. election. Uh, it seems to be something that is <laughs> being stymied. A it's going to be a good rights article there to be written. <laughs> exactly, right? Uh, and so 
the but when you conceive of it in duties, then what it stresses is the same thing. It's still potentially achieving the same goal. It's just recognizing that, you know, we're in this together in a way that rights can be atomizing um, and leaves the responsibility to attain the substance or the goal or the object of that right to the person with when realistically there are structural or systemic barriers in place that leaves the right really, really hollow. But if you frame it in terms of a duty, then there is that sense of more of a sense maybe of the need to help realize the objects of those duties. And so it just, I'm not saying like everything should be conceived of in terms of duties or that rights language has no place at all. It's done a remarkable amount of good, I think, in many ways. But especially on socioeconomic rights, I wonder, which are typically positive rights, I wonder if that's the way to go. Um, and it's the same with the right of necessity in the context of global justice. Um, historically, that right was so narrow in its scope and so focused on time limit fixing major but short-term problems um, that can it really be expanded to do the work of, uh, say, a right to migration? And that's something that everyone has. Um, maybe it can, but then maybe again, it, if you don't leave, the right itself is not realizable um, because of other structural barriers in the way. It's a right that can sit hollow and not actually really get you very far. Whereas maybe if we framed it in terms of like the duty to help those on an island that is going to be overwhelmed by, you know, the rise of sea levels, maybe we shouldn't be saying, well, they have a right to migrate, but we're saying we have a duty to help them find a place to not drown in. Um, and so that's sort of maybe going a little bit beyond the darker side of rights, but definitely there is um, the rights language for sure lends itself to uh, misappropriation and abuse. And I don't think anyone's essay better than Julia's helps bring that out. Um, but it is implicit, I think, maybe in other ones too. The fact like Wim's essay about uh, giving noblemen the ability to defer their loan payments um, so is, you know, maybe an a decent thing to do, but it didn't extend across all levels of society. And so you can see maybe there that there is like, a, it's giving people an extra chance to, um, that other people aren't given. And so if you're not careful about how the right is being applied and ex to whom it's being extended, it can uh, wreak powerful injustice too. Well, on that very thought-provoking note, Jonathan, I'm going to thank you for being on the show today. It's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. The book is Rights at the Margins, Historical, Legal, and Philosophical Perspectives. Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. It was a real pleasure to be here. Um, and I want to thank you on behalf of my other editors, uh, too, who couldn't all join us. I think it would have been too much, but um, it really, really it was really a great pleasure. Thank you.